0: listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. This episode features a wide-ranging discussion about the United States Supreme Court's recent and momentous ruling on marriage equality. The legal dream team that helped make this a reality included former Solicitor General Ted Olson and star litigator David Boies. They sat down to talk about their experience in fighting for marriage equality, which began back in 2000. Neil Cotial, former Acting Solicitor General of the United States, moderates a discussion that was recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival just four days after the ruling. Here are David Boies, Ted Olson, and Neil Cotial.
1: I have the privilege of of moderating a discussion between two great legal giants, Ted Olson and David Boies. I'm going to be brief because I think they really need... No introduction, but, but Ted was the Solicitor General, the top courtroom lawyer for President Bush. He was also before that the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, the top kind of internal executive branch lawyer. He's also a partner today uh, at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, where he runs their Supreme Court practice. David Boys, really a star top litigator who's running one of the nation's most important law firms. Among many other things he did, he was the Justice Department lawyer. As a private lawyer, the Justice Department didn't feel they had a lawyer good enough to take on Microsoft, so they went outside and hired David. Um, Both of them met in 2000, and maybe they'd met before, but they met across the courtroom in 2000 representing Gore and Bush. I won't say who won that. Um,
2: They don't like to hear that in here anyway. (laughs) Me either.
1: <laughs> Me either. <laughs> <laughs> These two legal giants joined together for something else, and that's, that's what we're here to talk about. What I, I think of as the most important Supreme Court ruling easily in our lifetimes, indeed, one of the three most Supreme Court rulings in American history uh, that came down uh, on Friday. Uh, the case has a difficult to pronounce name. It's called Obergefell versus Hodges. I just came down on Friday, just four days ago. And I was thinking, uh, you know, a week ago, as I was thinking about this talk, this is actually my favorite rock club. I was just saying that to Michael Goldberg, the owner. I've been here for like 50 different shows, and I was thinking, man, if I had to get on the stage and mourn what happened on Friday, that would be a real disaster. But fortunately, because of the work of these two, because of the work of so many other people across the country, we're here to celebrate and talk about what is a incredible victory um, by uh, by the LGBT community. So let me just tell you a word before getting to the discussion about what happened. So you've got a guy named James Obergefell. And he had married Jim Arthur, uh, and they couldn't get married in their home state, which is Ohio, so they got married in Maryland, which permitted same-sex marriages. And they wanted their marriage to be recognized when they moved back to Ohio, and they were told no. The state of Ohio only recognizes marriage as between one man and one woman. And so they had brought a lawsuit to try and challenge that. uh, And that's what culminated in the decision. And sadly, uh, Jim's uh, husband passed away a year before this Supreme Court decision. Um, And uh, if you haven't seen the clips of Jim standing on the Supreme Court steps on Friday, they're worth watching and about the way in which he honored uh, his husband. Um, I can tell you I was in the courtroom uh, when the decision came down. In the Supreme Court, they don't tell you when decisions come down. You just have to keep going, and I kept going for a week and a half at that point. Um, And the kind of conventional wisdom was it's going to happen on Monday, the last day of the term that people thought, not on Friday. Um, And there was a rumor that Justice Scalia was going on vacation, and so people thought, oh, maybe it'll be on Friday because he's leaving town on Saturday. Well, but basically everyone thought it wasn't coming down until 9.59. The court announced its decisions at 10 o'clock. At 9.59, Justice Stevens, who is retired, he retired a few years ago, walks into the courtroom for, to hear opinions. And at that point, the buzz in the room just became intense. Everyone knew what was about to happen. And this was, of course, the day after the historic health care decision on Thursday, pres- upholding President Obama's uh, health care plan. So... The Chief Justice begins by saying, Justice Kennedy has the opinion for the court in Obergefell versus Hodges. You didn't know really what that meant yet. Kind of everyone knew Justice Kennedy, who's a swing vote of the nine justices, would have the opinion, but we didn't know what he'd say. And for the first two minutes, it was kind of dry, You know, marriage is this, there's a tradition of marriage, and it has been for centuries, one man and one woman. Pause. But it does not stop there. And that's when you knew. And the, you could see people crying in the courtroom. The Justice Kennedy reading very much like a just dispassionate lawyer, just reading the opinion. Um, and then, uh, But it was very clear, and he announced the holding. And then the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts, who had just voted the day before to uphold the health care plan, uh, says, I'm reading a dissent. And this is the first time he's ever read a dissent from the bench in 10 years. So this is a significant thing. And it's pretty tough on Justice Kennedy, calling it pretentious and, and so on. Uh, left unsaid was Justice Scalia's dissent, which is even more over the top, and we'll, we'll talk about that with, with the experts uh, in a minute. Um, but the magnificent thing was walking out of the courtroom, and this is the last thing I'll say, but just, you know, I'd walked into the courtroom at nine fifteen, walking up the steps, it's about a thousand people on the plaza, maybe four hundred supporters of same sex marriage, four hundred against it, and they had they had their banners, and then two hundred other people there for you know heaven knows what reason um, by the time we walked out at about ten forty, there were about five thousand people on that plaza. uh The word had gotten out over Twitter and so on and they were, the the opponents were pretty much drowned out. It was an Aspen conversation on the Supreme Court Plaza. Um, and it was overwhelming. I mean, the national anthem was being sung, people were bawling, uh, people had come from all over to be there um, and to celebrate um, that moment. And that moment is, as I say, the culmination of a lot of people's work, but it isn't really, I think a large part of the story starts with you two. And it starts with you U2- two doing something really unusual in today's day and age, Democrat, a Republican coming together and saying, you know, there's something wrong in this country. So can you start by telling us a little bit, maybe I'll start with you, David, about how this, you know, kind of odd bedfellows partnership began. Ted and I had become
3: friends. We'd known each other slightly, but we'd become good friends uh, during Bush v. Gore. And afterwards, we talked about wanting to work together And we hadn't really found the right thing to do. And after the Proposition 8 had passed, um, a number of people in California who were interested in the radical idea of actually bringing a case under the federal constitution to establish the right to marriage equality contacted Ted to see whether he'd be willing to do that or not. It was a counterintuitive. decision for many of the people, but when they found out that he was willing to do it, they were thrilled uh, that somebody with his experience and ability uh, would be prepared to take that case on. Um, he contacted me, asked me if I wanted to join him. Uh, I did, um, and we immediately went, went to work on the case. It was a great opportunity, I think, for both of us uh, to work on something of this importance, but it was also a great opportunity for us to work together. And I think that one of the things that has been um, most meaningful to me, other than the result, which is far and away the most meaningful thing I've ever been involved in, is the ability and the friendship that Ted and I had and developed and ripened in, that, in during that case.
1: Now, I want to ask you the same question, but it's a little harder for you. I mean, I suspect you didn't lose too many friends uh, taking this case on, but, but Ted, I'm not quite sure that's true for you.
2: Well, I think there were some people uh, who were disappointed in me and some people are still disappointed in me, but um, that I really put that aside. First of all, I want to say how great it is for David and I to be here, for Michael to have us in this fabulous place. We were here a number of years ago, and they turned off uh, all the electricity in Aspen. Uh, so there was no—and was a very hot day—so there was no air conditioning. Uh, nothing but emergency lights, and no uh, amplification of our voices. So David and I were up here talking about what the Supreme Court had done, but we did have some great wine from Michael, Um, and I think everybody had a good time. And this is my favorite place in the world to be, uh, with the people here at Aspen. So thank you. It is such a great environment here. Um, there's something about this place and the feeling that people bring into this room. Secondly, it's important to say, and David and I have said this many, many times, that we didn't start this, um, this battle for marriage equality. There were many, many, many people who fought many battles before us in Massachusetts, in Hawaii, uh, in the academic world, and so forth, so we were um, building upon the work that had been done before, many, many, many people, uh, but when I was called and it was Robin Michelle Reiner, who most people know their names in Los Angeles, called me and asked me because they had heard from a friend of mine that I might be interested in taking on this case, and I said I was. I grew up in California i was California was the second state in the United States, after Massachusetts, where the court recognized the right of persons to marry the person that they loved, who happened to be of the same sex. That was the California Supreme Court in May of 2008. And the people of California wiped that off the books in November of 2008 with Proposition 8 that said marriage is only recognized and valid in California between a man and a woman. It took away the rights of thousands of people who had been so gleeful about the opportunity to marry the person that maybe they had been with for 10, 20, 15 years, or 40 years, or however long it was, been? that was Proposition 8. It was passed by the citizens of California on the same election that the citizens of California helped elect Barack Obama as President of the United States. And I grew up in California. I was surprised and disappointed. So when I was called about it, I I was anxious to take on a federal constitutional challenge to Proposition 8. And the first thing that we thought of, they, Rob and Michelle first when it was suggested to them that I be involved in this thing, that Rob said, he's the devil. Um, and <laughs> Michelle Smart Reiner man. said, Michelle Reiner said to the person who suggested it, ask her whether she was brain dead or not. But the fact is that I felt it was very important to citizens in California, it's very important to the people of the United States but I also felt because of my background that produced that kind of reaction that it was very important to find someone on the other side of the political spectrum, the finest lawyer in the United States happened to be available. So David Boys and I took on this case together and we felt it was a law case, a case in court, but it was a case in the court of public opinion. Maybe we'll talk about that. We felt it was important to do everything we could to persuade the American people that this was the right outcome. So if we won in court, our clients would be, feel uh, the reception and acceptance of the American people of that in court. There were many people on the conservative side who were surprised um, and disappointed, and I'm still hearing a little bit of that. But the main thing is that we felt, both David and I felt that if we could talk to anyone, we could convince them. Um, that, wasn't, that was now always true. Uh, But but we felt that if we talked about the issues, we talked about love and we talked about how marriage between people who loved one another did not hurt people uh, who were heterosexual who wanted to get married. And it was so important to those couples and their children and their families that this was something that we could all embrace. And When we started, there was a 17-point differential in the American public against marriage equality Last week, the NBC, uh, Wall Street Journal poll was 57 to 37 in favor. That's only six years ago.
1: So, we've talked about the conservative reaction, but actually you all had some trouble from your friends too, I think. It wasn't just uh, folks who were on the other side of this. There were people who said, you're doing this too fast. The court's not ready, the nation's not ready for you to bring what became Hollingsworth versus Perry, the challenge to Proposition 8 that you were talking about. So how did you think about that, and how did you navigate that, in which you're getting so much grief from your allies? Well, it,
3: we, we certainly um, were concerned about it. Um, when we announced that we were going to take this case, or even before we actually brought the case, when we let people know that we were considering bringing the case, there was al- almost universal, opposition on the part of the men and women who had fought this battle for decades. Um, The ACLU, Lambda Legal Defense, uh, all of the uh, organizations that had really led the battle for equal rights were very much opposed to it. Um, There had been a case in uh, the early 1970s in which a couple in, in Minnesota had challenged Minnesota's ban on same sex marriage under the federal constitution. Um, that had been summarily dismissed by the district court, summarily affirmed by the court of appeals, and when they tried to appeal to the Supreme Court, they, the Supreme Court, in a essentially one paragraph opinion, dismissed it for lack of a substantial federal question. And after that, no one had really thought about bringing, seriously, about bringing a federal constitutional challenge. And what they were afraid of is that we would bring the case and lose it, and that we would get language in the majority opinion that was comparable to some of the language that was in the dissenting opinion in Lawrence against Texas. Lawrence against Texas was a case in uh, 12 years ago, 12 years ago last month, 12, 12 years ago this month, um, in which the Supreme Court, for the first time, struck down state laws that criminalized homosexual conduct. And there was a 6-3 decision, um, but the dissenting opinions were extremely hostile, not just on the law, but they compared um, uh, gay relationships to bestiality, to incest, to prostitution, one of the opinions said that um, if you uh, struck down this law, you were going to eliminate all laws based on morality. It, w- it was a very biting and uh, decision and the kind of thing that I think people worried about. If we lost, were we going to get that kind of opinion uh, from the court in majority? And what would that mean to the overall fight for, for equality? Now, we had a lot of good reasons for disagreeing with that. Um, but that was, that was serious uh, opposition and opposition that we took very seriously.
1: So Ted, it's 2008 when these decisions are happening um, and whether you're going to bring this lawsuit. Your job for decades has been to count noses on the Supreme Court. Do you think in 2008 you can, that's a winnable case? Or is your view, I need to pair with David, change the court of public opinion, and then change the Supreme Court's well, we attitude?
2: Felt, we felt from the beginning, right from the beginning, that we could win this case. We would not have taken it if we didn't feel that we could have win this, won this case. Now, both David and I are subject to the kind of thing that lawyers are infected by, that we think we can win any case. And we talked about the fact that we reflected back on Bush versus Gore and David got four votes and I got five votes, now we've revealed that, Um, uh, that David would take care of those four and I'd take care of the five and it would be nine to nothing. Um, But we really felt that based upon the Supreme Court decisions that we could count to five and that we could find five votes We also told the groups that said, be cautious, wait till there's a better Supreme Court. They didn't know when there would be a better Supreme Court. One of them told my partner in Los Angeles, Ted Butrus, who helped us with this, he asked, when do you think it'll be a better Supreme Court? And they said, eight to 10 years. Uh, But no one knows who's going to appoint the next justice, who's going to leave, what the dynamics are going to be. And someone in California there is—you may be, find this surprising—but there are lawyers all over California. That—that that is the number one thing to do in California. So, some lawyer was going to bring this case, and we felt very strongly that if it was done in the right way, if it would go to the United States Supreme Court, that case was important. That we do it right, um, and we felt that reading Justice Kennedy's opinions and reading the opinions of the other justices, that we could win this case, but. To also answer your question, we also felt that we needed to do it right. We needed to have the right plaintiffs. We needed to have the right legal foundation. We needed to have the right legal teams. David's firm and my firm working together, we put all of our resources into this as if it was the most important case that we'd ever handled for any of our most important high-paying clients. Uh, David's firm, I don't know how how many hours they put in, but my firm put in before this was over 32,000 hours of legal work. Uh, We felt that we could win this case, but we also felt that we wanted to do it right and we wanted to shape public opinion along the way. So David wrote articles in the Wall Street Journal, I wrote articles about the conservative case for gay marriage, we appeared on television, we did everything we could to reach out to as many people as we possibly could. If we could send the message and talk about the issues, it would help.
1: So this ultimately does become a court case, and it's a little artificial here. David is known uh, a bit more for his trial work, but he's argued a bunch of Supreme Court cases, and Ted's obviously known as a Supreme Court litigator, but he's done a lot of work in trial court as well. Here, as I understand it, you guys did pair equally at all stages of this, but maybe I'll just start with you. You're starting this trial out in California. Um, Really, it's the only full record, I think, of this issue. Tell us a little bit about the trial. How do you develop a record on something like, does gay marriage harmful to society? Well, one of the,
3: one of the things we did, is, as Ted said, is we prepared it just as we would have a case for our most important corporate clients, which is we go around the world, we find the right witnesses, we find the right expert witnesses, we brought in uh, witnesses on uh, economics, on sociology, on psychology, on history, uh, on religion, We brought in factual witnesses that testified about what this meant, uh, these bans on marriage equality meant um, to individuals. Um, We had uh, the most uh, extensive research uh, on the issue uh, that's ever been compiled or presented. Um, We had a three-week trial. Uh, We brought in all of these uh, uh, experts, subjected them to cross-examination. And we built a record that really demonstrated three things. One, that depriving gay and lesbian couples of the right to marry the person that they loved seriously harmed them. And second, that that seriously harmed the children that they were raising. And third, there was no valid justification. There was no societal benefit. There was no benefit to heterosexual marriages. Um, to uh, preventing uh, gay and lesbian citizens from marrying. And the places where you had had marriage equality, the sky didn't fall, nothing happened, except more people were happy.
1: And what did the states say in their record? What did they? What, what did Chuck Cooper have as his record?
3: He had a, a very difficult time. Chuck Cooper's a good lawyer, and he, he had a really tough time. Um, because... He couldn't really think of anything to say. <laughs> and, um, and, and one of the things that he was confronted with, and one of the reasons that we thought we would we'd win, is a noted legal scholar, um, Justice Scalia, had said in his dissent in Lawrence in 2003, this is the end. He said, after this decision, there is no constitutional justification for preventing same-sex marriage. Um, he said, "What are you going to argue? You're going to argue that you need it for procreation? That's silly." Um, and of course, that is exactly what they tried to argue first. And then it was obvious that you didn't. That first of all, this didn't, didn't stop procreation among heterosexual couples. Um, uh, Not second, so far. So, so far, anyway. <laughs> um, and hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, and and second that we've never made the ability to procreate in a condition of, of marriage, as Justice Scalia himself emphasized. So there really wasn't anything he had to say. And at one point, um, it finally came down to the idea that somehow allowing um, marriage equality was somehow going to interfere with quote, traditional marriage. And early on, the judge asked Cooper, well, what is that harm? Where is that harm going to come from? And Cooper, like a good lawyer without an answer, tried to dance around the question, avoid it. Finally, uh, he said, I need an answer. And Cooper paused and said, I don't know. I don't know. And that was their case. They didn't have anything that they could point to. Um, one, One of the things I've said is that what I, I pride myself on being able to figure out the best arguments that my opponent can make because that allows me to be, get ready to def, defend against them. This was the first case I've ever had where I couldn't figure out an argument for the other side. They didn't have an argument. They had a bumper sticker, ma- marriage is between a man and a woman, but that, that, wasn't, that wasn't an argument, that wasn't an analysis, that wasn't a precedent. That was an assumed conclusion. They didn't have anything to justify what they were doing. And the great thing about a trial is you get people's attention. You make people sit there and listen. Reporters come in, they don't have anything else to do. They've got to write about what you're what you're putting on. And you you bring to the American people ideas in a way that's very hard to do in other in other contexts. And I think the trial was one of the great accomplishments that we had because we built this record, a record that everybody could rely on afterwards, a record that allowed the district judge to write a great opinion. And a record that everybody could use and look at, reporters could look at, and they could understand that this was damaging, it was harmful, it was hateful, and it didn't serve any purpose.
2: I wanna say, can I? The, the trial was three weeks long. We brought experts on history of marriage that showed how marriage had changed, how marriage was a discriminatory um, institution against women slaves could not be married uh, you could not marry someone who was chinese in california without losing your citizenship so marriage was always the same thing it had changed we had um, experts that talked about the stigma the damage that stigma has done to people who are prevented from announcing who they are or being who they are we we had um, experts from we, we went as far as Cambridge, Harvard, Stanford, every uh, the finest places in the United States, talked about raising children, the impact of marriage between same-sex individuals on heterosexual individuals. We had the finest experts in the world, and the other side cross-examined them for hours at a time and did not budge those witnesses because they knew what they believed and they testified as to what they believed. The other side had the same opportunity They listed 10 to 12 expert witnesses in various places from the world on all these various issues. David and some of my colleagues from my firm took their depositions, um, usually on videotape, and systematically demolished those witnesses. So that by the time of trial, all of those witnesses, except for two, decided they had other things to do that, that, that January. One of them actually testified that he did not want to be in a courtroom live with David Boys. <laughs> the, 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 the two witnesses that did show up, David systematically took them apart. The lead expert who had been studying marriage and written books and given all this testimony and watching David cross-examine witnesses is something that everyone should have the chance to see um, because it is a, it's is—it's a work of art um, and it's intellect. It's intellect, it's patience, it's talent, and you cannot completely prepare for this, although he's extraordinarily prepared. So their number one expert on marriage testified and David's cross-examination at the end of the trial, that America would be more true to its ideals the day we recognize the right of same-sex persons. That was their leading expert. That was their their case. We felt, sitting there in this trial, that we were all receiving a fantastic education about ourselves, our country, and our ideals. so that trial was a, um, a fabulous lesson in American history and American constitutional law.
1: So you have this amazing trial, but then there's this procedural problem. In the case is going to the Supreme Court and there's a problem with it that might make it so that the Supreme Court doesn't decide the issue. How do you navigate that? What's your expectation walking into the U.S. Supreme Court well, we in 2012? T- I'm not going to
2: spend too much time unless you want to. But the, the procedural problem is that the state of California finally decided they gave up. They were not going to defend Proposition 8 anymore. The Jerry Brown was um, the attorney general, then became the governor, and someone else was the attorney general. I can't remember. But they decided they weren't going to defend Proposition 8 anymore, but they were present at the trial, so we had what the lawyers call standing. There was a, an opposition. They were enforcing Proposition 8. When the judge came down with his decision, State of California abandoned the case and they would not appeal. So the proponents of Proposition 8 were the ones that took the appeal. And, and we made the point, they don't have any stake in this. They're not being hurt. They want the law to be such and such, but they're not actually hurt by allowing same-sex persons to get married in California. To make a long story short, Ultimately, the Supreme Court of the United States says they did not have the right to appeal that case, and we had made that argument all the way to the end, so the uh, outcome in the Supreme Court, which is why there was another the uh, the necessity of another decision, the one that came down this Friday, is that the Supreme Court struck down the appeal and upheld our district court decision that struck down Proposition 8. We sort of... We wanted to have the whole world, and lawyers all want everything, you know, the whole change the whole planet. But we were set out to overturn Proposition 8. So when the Supreme Court upheld the district court decision through that procedural aspect of the case, that was like a Wednesday. On Friday, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals lifted its stay, and the people that we represented went to the City Hall in San Francisco and City Hall in Los Angeles. And those two couples were the first two couples to get married in California since Proposition 8 was passed. And everybody in the world could see that on television and could see the joy. And so we felt awfully good.
1: So it's 2012. You've won this big victory. And the communities won another victory. They've struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, which barred federal benefits for same-sex couples. Justice Scalia's dissent says, goes over the top and says, well, this is just basically legalizing same-sex marriage. And that's the next step. And that leads both of you to take another case. Not in California. You've won in California. California is done, but now you take another case. Virginia. It was in Virginia. And
3: we picked Virginia for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, It was a symbolic uh, state. It was the heart of the Uh, Confederacy. It was a state that had uh, generated loving against Virginia, which was the case that overruled the right of states to bar interracial marriage. It had one of the most restrictive um, prohibitions um, on gay relationships in the country. not only prevented gay marriage, you couldn't have civil unions, you couldn't even have a contract that had some of the attributes of marriage. Um, So uh, Ted and I thought that that was a a great place to continue it. And uh, we again took it to um, uh, the district court. We won there, we won on appeal. Um, And uh, the other side sought cert, but the Supreme Court denied it. Now while this was happening, um, courts all over the country were striking down um, marriage bans. So by the time this the uh, current case got to the Supreme Court, 36 states had marriage equality. Um, you now had fewer states banning same-sex marriage than you had states that banned interracial marriage at the time of Loving Against Virginia. So one of the things that had happened just in that two years is there is had been a seismic shift, not only in the courts, but in the court of public opinion. And I think that was one of the things that gave... All
1: of us so much confidence going into Friday. So the court doesn't take the Virginia case, but they do take this case, Obergefell out of Ohio, and they take Tennessee, a case out of Tennessee, and a case out of Michigan uh, as well. Pair them all together. Don't
2: forget to mention Kentucky because my Kentucky, wife is here in absolutely, the absolutely
1: in Kentucky, um, and they pair these together, and you have this momentous decision on Friday in the in the case. Now, Ted, if David's point is right, 36 states already had this. So how important is this ruling? It seems like the trend was already going in that direction. What, why is this ruling so important? Why are people calling it momentous? Well, in
2: the first place, and that's a very good question, it was discussed by the justices on both sides of the case. Um, the, the dissenters said, my goodness, you're winning these 11 states, including New York, including Maryland, and including Washington, and so forth, had decided to vote of, by the, either the people or the legislature to recognize the rights of individuals to marry the person that they loved of the same sex. But there were 14, there were several of those states of the 36, those were court decisions. So that wasn't over until the Supreme Court decided this case. That's one reason. Another reason is that, and Justice Kennedy talks about this in his majority opinion, what about the children in those cases? What about the people that get married in California and move to Tennessee? What about the people, this Jim Oberfell, his, the person that he loved um, had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. He became, and he took care of him uh, day and night, 24 hours a day. And they wanted to get married. They could not get married in Ohio they went to Maryland in a medevac helicopter. He couldn't move, so they had uh, someone come to the aircraft and perform the wedding. Uh, and then they went back to Ohio, and this, his, his now spouse died. And Ohio would not allow Jim to be listed as a surviving spouse on the death certificate. How awful is that? In Michigan, the women who were bringing the case had adopted four developmentally disabled children that other people couldn't or wouldn't adopt in Michigan. And the states wouldn't recognize the adoption of both parents or both the women. Um, And that deprived those children of benefits. How awful is that? That's the kind of cases that the Supreme Court was dealing with. And so when Justice Kennedy talked about this, and he talked about the fact that when Brown versus Board of Education was decided, there were lots of schools that were segregated. When Loving versus Virginia was decided, there were 16 states that prevented people from getting married to someone of a different race. The president's mother and father, if they'd traveled to Virginia, would have been guilty of a felony. So we can't have in this country Um, laws that take away individual rights and say, well, wait till the American people are willing to vote to rectify that injustice. That is not acceptable. That is why, as David has said this more eloquently than I have, that is why we have a constitution. That's why we have a bill of rights. That's why we have a judiciary. Because when individual rights are being taken away, even if popular sentiment is moving in the right direction, you can't wait for that. Martin Luther King talked about this in his letter from a Birmingham jail, which is probably one of the most finest documents of our constitutional history. When people say wait, they mean never. And that's what the court decided.
3: I, I think there's one other thing I'd like to add. I and mean, I think um, Ted is exactly right, that we have one country, one constitution. And you can't say just because you're winning in 36 states, you're going to deprive people of their rights in, in other states. But even if we could have won legislatively in every state, it was important for the Supreme Court to say, as a matter of constitutional law, everyone is equal. It was important as a matter of constitutional law for the Supreme Court to say, everybody is entitled to the dignity that comes from being able to marry the person that you love. Um, If the legislature gives you something, the legislature can take it away. It's only when you recognize that this is a constitutional right that cannot be taken away that people can really feel secure. I think one of the reasons that you saw this enormous outpouring of emotion from people gay and straight across the country was because they recognized that we were doing something as a country that validated people, that spoke about relationships, that lifted people up. And you don't do that just by granting somebody something through legislation that can be taken away. You do that by recognizing as your country, and the way we do this is through the Supreme Court,
1: that everybody is equal, that everybody is normal. But what, I mean, that sounds beautiful. What do both of you say, however to the criticism that the Chief Justice said, which is go and celebrate this decision, it's an emotional one, and so on, but it's not a constitutional decision, that in our Constitution, people decide these things, momentous things, we have a text, the Constitution doesn't have a right to same-sex marriage, it has general words like due process, and equal protection, there's a very prominent legal scholar who criticized, quote, judges for taking some of these social decisions off the policy table, taking them away from the people by constitutionalizing these issues, and he said that the president should appoint judges who, quote, will interpret the law, not create new rights that weren't there in the Constitution. I'm speaking, of course, of Ted Olson, Wall Street Journal, 2007.
3: (laughs)
2: But th- th- this I, will w- but let, I will let um, the answer to that um, come from David Boyce.
3: <laughs> this, this, this is not a new right. Okay? This is a right to marry that's been recognized by the Supreme Court, as Ted has pointed out more eloquently than I can, 14 separate times. Um, there is no right in the Constitution written in there that says you have a right to marry somebody of a different race. There's nothing that's written in the Constitution that says you have a right to go to school with, any, with people of different races. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you have a right to marry somebody of the same sex. But what there is written in the Constitution is the right to equal protection of the laws. It is written in there. That's written in there. You don't have to look very far to find it. It's capitalized, and it is part of our Constitution, and it says that you cannot say— to somebody because they are black, or white, or green, or straight, or gay, or Catholic, or Jewish, or atheist, that you don't get the same rights that everybody else does. And that's part of our culture. It's part of our Constitution. And you don't look for something in the Constitution that says you don't discriminate against women, you don't discriminate against blacks, you don't discriminate against gays. It's not a tax code. It's a set of principles. And one of the most basic principles is the principle of equal protection. And if you...
1: <laughs> Beautiful. And I'll just play with the other side for just one more second. If we take that view, though, what, what I mean, that there's a right to marry, is there then a right to marry two people, three people?
2: If, if, one at a time. One, know, at, one a time. at a time. Yeah, only, only, only one at a time.
3: Um, if, if you grant to straight people the right to marry more than one, you've got to grant that right to gay people. If you grant to white people the right to marry more than one, you've got to grant that right to people of different races. What you have to do is you have to treat people equally. If you treat everybody equally and you, you say to everybody you can have one spouse, there isn't any equal protection problem there. What, what, what arises in the problem of the Constitution is when you begin to treat people differently. Now, that's the equal protection argument. There's also a due process argument um, uh, in favor of it. But uh, the idea that this has anything to do with polygamy or um, any of the other things that uh, people like to talk about uh, is, is silly.
2: There, it doesn't there, have anything to do with. it. You know, people like to say, "Well, the sky is going to fall." people. We are asked. We we practice these things, and people are asking us during our moot courts, Um, what if I want to marry my cat, you know, (laughs) this is ridiculous. The discrimination, the discrimination was on the basis of sexual orientation. So it was the right to marry, which was association and liberty and privacy and being a part of an institution that is extraordinarily important in this country and the denial of that right to people because of their sexual orientation. You don't choose to be gay or straight. You will not be, you can be told you have a right to marry someone of the opposite sex. That is an empty, empty promise to people who are gay. So we're, and and polygamy is a totally different thing. It's It's a choice. It is not something that is an immutable characteristic based upon sexual orientation. I could go on and on. But I'm glad you teed that up because it came up in, in, the, in the decisions and the chief justice mentioned that. I don't think that was worthy of the chief justice. It is a red herring. It is one of those things where you can imagine the terrible things that are going to happen. If you allow these people who have been in love for 40 years, who've raised a family and a home and been a part of our neighborhood, if they should get married, oh, my God, you know. After them, the deluge, to quote Louis XIV or whatever it is. So, you know, I was disappointed in that kind of an argument, but I'm glad you brought it up.
1: Well, thank you.
3: (laughs) Hi, uh, my name is Gary Block. I'm from Washington, D.C. First off, I want to thank both of you for coming to the festival, and it's just an honor to be here with both of you. Okay, my question is, um, the states that weren't parties to the suit, Ted Cruz, for example, says they're not bound, by the by, the law. So, what's your thought on that? And I know you're not your lawyers are not political analysts, but how do you think that will affect the this ruling now the law of the land? How will affect the 016, uh presidential election and the, especially the Republican nominee?
2: Okay. So, uh, you said the word Republican, so David was pointing it to me. So, <laughs> this has happened before in our history when individuals have said the Supreme Court has decided that case. We're not bound by it. We're going to do what we think is right. Um, I think that's terribly unfortunate. I think it's terribly unfortunate um, to hear those words from someone running for president. Um, We had that from Orville Faubus. I was in my first year of high school, I mean college when that sort of thing was taking place. It's happened earlier this year in Alabama. It happened in Alabama by the Chief Justice who didn't want to obey the Supreme Court decisions about the Ten Commandments in the United States Supreme Court. We have a federal constitution. It will be respected. There will be these sorts of things, which are, I think, diminishing the people who do them, the, But and, and to make these statements. But the But the Supreme Court has said there is a constitutional right not to be discriminated against with respect to the fundamental right to marry and the Equal Protection Clause, the protection of equal laws. That is and will be the law for the entire United States as far as the Republican Party is concerned. Now there's, I may talk about this later in the conference about the number of people running for president on the Republican Party. But I think that the sooner uh, as a Republican my whole life the sooner Republicans respect and recognize the rights of individuals uh, and to to remember if they say we are the party of Lincoln we better behave like the party of Lincoln so I think we will get there and I will keep trying Uh, Ned
3: Lubell, thank you gentlemen Um, question is strategically from the long term standpoint of this right that's now national. Were there any disadvantages or potential unintended consequences of it having been put forth by the Supreme Court as opposed legislatively, either by the U.S. Congress or by states?
1: And let me just add to that. The Chief Justice says this is actually bad for the gay rights community because up until now they've been winning in the legislatures, persuading the hearts and minds of Americans. Now you've used judicial fiat to get this.
2: I want to say something after he does, but I'm sure we're going to say the same thing.
3: I I don't think the Chief Justice, uh, with all due respect, is the best guide for what's best for the gay and lesbian communities.
2: (laughs) Um,
3: I I think they know better than he does what's good for them. Um, uh, uh, Other than that, I I will just say what I adverted to before, which is that... um, uh, if we'd waited for it to be legislated, we'd we'd wait a long time in some of the states. Um, if we'd waited to desegregate the schools um, until that was, could be done in the state legislatures, we would have waited a very long time. You don't deprive people of constitutional rights. Um, that, as Ted says, that's why we have a written constitution, because there are certain rights that we're going to enforce for people regardless of what the what the legislature does. Um, and And the the only thing else I would say is what I said before, which is I think even if you could have won it legislatively, it was important to have the court stake this ground out, stake out the ground that this is a matter of equality, of dignity, and of fairness for everybody.
2: And I'll just say one more thing, because I mentioned Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. He was under a lot of pressure uh, from, ministers, uh, people of faith, saying, you've got to slow down. You're going to cause a backlash. Your strategy should be to be patient. We are making progress. Please let that progress take place. It is an eloquent, beautiful document. When he rejects the idea of patience and waiting, uh, and he says the time has come but we have to fight for our rights and fight for the accomplishment of our rights. Minorities lose when you put them to popular vote. It might They might win tomorrow, but they might lose the next day. Um, unfor- and that is why we have a Constitution and a Bill of Rights and an Equal Protection Clause. Um, and if you start thinking about the Civil War and people tell you, well, things would have come out OK, they would not have come out OK.
1: Hi, my name is Gaurav Kapadia, and uh, I have a statement and a question. My statement, as I just posted on social media, is I consider the two of you true American heroes, um, and thank you so much for for your service and what you've done. Uh, My question, um, I would love to ask both of you specifically to respond to Justice Scalia's dissent, uh, mainly because... He views himself as so pure in reading of the law. But as I read it as a layman, I'm not an attorney, I see deep prejudice. And I would love uh, for both of you to opine.
2: I've known Justice Scalia for a long, long time. I do not believe in my heart um, that he is prejudiced or bigoted. I believe that he believes very, very strongly in the People's ability and willingness, and constitutional right to change things under the Constitution. Except he for be- Citizens United. Uh, <laughs> you,
1: we'll the, talk about
3: Citizens United. Or the or voting, or the voting uh, rights. I, you act, know, if you or the you, gun, guns in, around schools. Balance um,
2: against you, women you, act? Uh, Neil, I think you've slipped out of your role as a moderator. <laughs> And if you want to come not good at this moderating If thing. you want to come to the program tomorrow morning <laughs> on Citizens United we'll take care of that then. But um, but he believes that you interpret the constitution and you interpret legislation based upon the words in the legislation or the words in the constitution. Now, the problem for Justice Scalia is he's been saying since a case uh, that came out of Colorado called Romer versus uh, Colorado, I guess it was, and the the Lawrence versus Texas case and the Windsor case involving the Defense of Marriage Act. He's been saying that the logic and words of the majority in those cases mean that marriage will be respected um, under the uh, Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses of the Constitution. The Supreme Court's already decided that. He hasn't quite given up, And, and I think the language of the decision is unfortunate. Um, and um, I think this country will continue to change. The language of Justice Scalia's opinions have changed. This was rather harsh opinion. It was it was a, a harsh in the Obamacare case too, but it was less harsh than some of the earlier opinions. So, I mean, I think that it is what it is with respect to the justices. They bring their own ideas. They bring their own backgrounds to the Supreme Court and you have these five, four decisions. Um, but we've had those throughout our history. Our country has continued to grow. I'm an optimist and I believe that our country will accept this decision and it will be, when we talk about the Loving versus Virginia case, that was 1967, 16 states still made it a felony to further to be interracial marriages. If you talk to people today, people say, well, that was never the law in these states of the United States. And if you talk to young people today about marriage equality, 70 to 80% of people under 30 think that it's not an issue. What are you talking about? So I think this country is evolving, and it has continued to evolve. We had a, we've had a terrible past uh, with slavery, with incarceration of Japanese uh, American citizens, uh, discrimination against women. But the one thing that's, good, that's really good about this country is that we are, we believe, most of us believe in those ideals. We'll, David and I called our book Redeeming the Dream because it's the dream of equality and we, we believe that we're making progress towards that, that goal and that objective and that aspiration. I, uh, uh, my name is uh, David Koch and uh, the marriage equality uh, uh, Act is such a powerful issue. Uh, I'm wondering what the the laws are in Europe uh, throughout all European countries regarding the marriage equality. Are there certain uh, countries in Europe that approve a marriage equality and there are others that are, that are not? Uh, uh,
3: there are. Um, the vast majority of the uh, c- countries in, in Europe uh, have marriage equality. Um, uh, in fact, one of the things that we argued um, was that countries as Catholic as Spain, um, as uh, as different from the United States and South Africa, um, all had marriage equality before we did. Um, uh, but there are differences, uh, and I think that what, what you're seeing um, around the Western world is an increasing movement in uh, uh, Mexico City, um, uh, adopted um, uh, marriage equality. Uh, you're seeing across the country in North and South America and in Europe. Uh, I think a strong trend towards marriage equality. You're not seeing that um, in the Middle East. You're not seeing that in Asia, and you're not seeing that in general in Africa. So what you're, what I think what you're seeing is a very divided planet, in which the Western societies. Generally speaking, and are moving in one direction, and the re- and the rest of the world is not moving there nearly as fast. I think one of the things that we have to do is somehow bring this message um, to the rest of the world.
2: And and Ireland just a two yeah, weeks Ire- ago Ireland just voted. It was sixty-two yeah. percent of the people in Ireland. Right. This is the first country in the world by popular vote right. recognized marriage equality. Yeah. And and so. The, We've seen since, David and I have been studying this, and we don't know everything uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but we've seen an enormous change in Spain, in France, in Mexico, in countries in South America, very, very Catholic countries that have changed. Ireland, my goodness, you know. So the changes occurred. Now, it is still important to recognize that there are countries in Africa, there are countries in the Middle East where you can be put to death uh, if you are gay or if you even manifest characteristics that appear to be gay, um, it's a death penalty. It's not just prison, it is a death penalty and people were rounded up and executed. So it's a long, long ways to go in this world, but it's so gratifying that the American, that the the people of the United States have made this step that we made through because of the Supreme Court last Friday, um, people watch what happens in the United States. And so it's so important um, to the rest of the world and gay citizens throughout the world who have been persecuted and subject to extreme cruelty for a long, long time. Things are changing. So
1: we're going to be kicked out pretty soon um, but uh, with people with better voices. But um, before, before doing that, I do want to just ask you all one final Question. I mean, this place has a tradition of encores. Um, and um, the encore here is I mean, doing good is like this kind of good. Changing the world is really addictive. And doing it on a bipartisan basis across the aisles, you know, David has done in the criminal justice area is also really a powerful thing. What, what's your encore?
3: What are you guys going to do? We, we were asked that question by uh, Gavin Newsom. Uh, in in San Francisco uh, about a year ago, and one of the things that we said was that there were a lot of things we were interested in. One of the uh, most important um, for me, and I I know for Ted and for Ted Boutras, who worked very closely with us from Gibson Dunn as well, is in the area of education. Um, Education, we think, is a basic civil right. Uh, Indeed, it's a civil right that without it, it makes all other civil rights hard to exercise. I mean, if if you if you want to vote, if you want to have a job, if you want to exercise all of the rights and freedoms that as Americans we we have, if you don't have an education, it's hard to do that. And we have a very unequal educational system in this country. Um, we have a very unfair, a very inefficient educational system. And I think that um, it's it's a, in some respects it's a much more difficult issue than marriage equality because you could win marriage equality in one court decision. You can't win educational quality in one court decision. Um, but I think it's, it's certainly one of the things that we want to work on.
2: Uh, I totally agree with David. I should not even say a word. Um, <laughs> but we've done with what, one of the, the cases that we've handled in California has demonstrated to us that The victims of our some of the flaws in our education system are visited on the people in the inner cities, the people that are less advantaged, um, racial minorities. We are failing to educate the people who we most need to educate for them, and for ourselves, and for our economy, and for our ideals. So we've got to fix some things in the educational system, and I won't go into the details, but um, we are both very much interested in that. And we believe, David and I believe, that we can come together on some of these things and to bring about some changes. I think one of the, the people kept calling us an odd couple and things like that, and strange, well, no, I won't say, (laughs) but, we had we, we we had we were lucky enough because of some sex successes in our earlier career um, to to be able to, to have command an audience and successes so,
3: and failures
2: <laughs> successes and failures I've I forgotten about those but, Um we were able to command an audience because we're willing to talk about things that we agree upon that we hope that other people will agree upon and I think we both feel that it's a challenge for us and an opportunity for us uh, for, to do, do some things together. We're on the opposite sides, a whole bunch of cases, yeah, yeah. by the way, um, and we, Dave wins some and I win some, but, um, but we do feel that we have the opportunity maybe to think about things that we can do together and education is one.
3: And, and, and also I think it, it's important, I think, to send the message that people who do disagree on, on a lot of things can agree and find common ground. Um, one, one of the great things um, about this case was, was working with Ted, but one of the other great things was in seeing people from every spectrum come together. I mean, this was something that was supported by liberal institutions and it was supported by the Cato Institute. Um, you, what, what you found was the ability to bring people together—conservatives, liberals, Republicans, Democrats—where you can find where you can find common ground.
2: And I, and I, I have one more sentence because David has talked about us working together. Our wives, Mary boys is an accomplished, extremely successful lawyer, and my wife. Lady Booth Olson is an extremely accomplished, successful lawyer. They were with us right from the beginning. We should have mentioned them right at the outset. Uh, This was a team of lots of people and it was important for the message, it was important for the case, it was important for the strategy that we were a lot of people making a part of a team and I think it's really important for us to mention them too.
1: Well, with that, um, I think uh, the gentleman Gorev said it best in the back. You two are true American heroes. Um, Ideas is lucky to have you. Aspen's lucky to have you, but most of all, our country is lucky to have you. So, thank you both.
0: That was David Boyes, Ted Olson, and Neil Cadiel, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival, June thirtieth, two thousand and fifteen. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.